90 to 95% of all leafy greens and lettuce for the entire United States comes from two spots, Salinas Valley, California and Yuma, Arizona. So a literal desert and then, and then an area that has consistently been going through drought and is now in a super drought. So you're in New York, Silas, nine times out of 10, when you eat a salad, don't think that it comes from Pennsylvania or New Jersey or even Missouri or anywhere east of the Mississippi. It 90% probability it comes from California, 3,000 miles away. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Clean Techies podcast. This is episode 65 of the show. I'm your host, Silas Maynard, and I'm thrilled to have the opportunity to bring this to you and thank you again for tuning into the show. Um, as always, we want to make mention that if you are a founder in the climate tech space and are looking for support, please feel free to reach out to us. Uh, we're glad to help in any way we can, making introductions to people who have formerly been on the show, uh, potential partnerships that you're looking for, or perhaps raising capital. Uh, please feel free to reach out. Always glad to have an impromptu conversation and see what we can do. Um, so on, on today's episode, we are speaking with Eddie Badrina, the CEO of Eden Green Technologies. Um, Eden is a vertical farming technology company that is primarily focused on the growing, at least presently, of lettuce at a commodity scale. So in, in today's episode, Eddie walks us through a number of things, including the challenges of other vertical growers, kind of just generally speaking, the challenges of, of uh, a vertical growing farm. And then also compares some of the different business models. We discussed food insecurity due to climate change. Uh, we have, of course, discussed how their technology works and kind of the return on investment. And then we also discussed what their future and the future of vertical farming looks like generally, as well as uh, how they are not only farming kind of uh, lettuce, of course, but they're also taking a very interesting approach to talent and essentially farming their own talent, bringing career growth to uh, the farming industry in a way that really, from what I understand, has not really been seen before. So it's very fascinating. That perhaps is my most uh, fascinating aspect aspect of the show for, for me personally. But uh, generally speaking, really great episode with Eddie. Super glad we could bring this to you. And uh, as of course, before we get into the show, we do want to make mention and thanks to our sponsors, Next Wave Partners. Uh, Next Wave are experts in talent acquisition, recruitment, and retention across the climate tech, renewables, and ESG spaces globally. So if you... Uh, your team is growing, or you per- personally are looking for a career change, feel free to reach out to them at next-wavepartners.com or reach out to one of their consultants directly via their LinkedIn page. And also, if, if you are interested in becoming a sponsor of the show, feel free to reach out to me. My email can be found in the description, or you can reach me directly through our Slack channel. So with that, uh, without any further delay, let's uh, let's get into the show. All right. Welcome. Welcome to the show, Eddie. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Silas? I am. I'm doing super well. I'm extremely excited to have you on. Uh, we have not had many people in this space, so I think this is going to be a great episode. Uh, why don't you, I guess, start off with just giving us a quick introduction to yourself and, and how you ended up here? Yeah. So my name is Eddie Badrina. I'm the CEO of Eden Green, and it is a vertical uh, greenhouse. So it's a combination of things that you may have seen uh, on TV or in uh, news articles of a greenhouse that gets 100% of sunlight plus vertical farms, uh, which take advantage of the cubic volume within a structure, right? 
So, I mean, how I got here is such a, a I would say it's a pretty circuitous road. Um, it's for, for your listeners, it's a testament to just because you start out somewhere doesn't mean you have to end up in that field or track. And then likewise, uh, just, just because you want to get somewhere else, it doesn't mean you have to, you, you know, you, you're not stuck there in the track and then you can come from any, anywhere. Uh, for me, actually started uh, with a degree in psychology of all things, and then got a master's in public administration and international affairs. So I, I divide my career into three chapters. One is government, uh, where I was, uh, in foreign policy. And then for two years, I was president Bush's Asian American spokesperson. Then my second chapter is I started a company, a digital marketing uh, firm, uh, started, bootstrapped it from scratch, no loans, no lines of credit, just straight cash flow. Grew it, sold it 2016, bought it back 11 months later, and then continued running it. And then I had this, uh, this moment in my life where I was trying to figure out what to do next. I had this successful company, my business partner and I were running it pretty successfully the second time. And I just felt like I wanted to do something else. Um, so from there, uh, I, I had a chance to jump onto Eating Green, which is sort of my third chapter of my career, if you will. And uh, and that's where I am now. And so how did you end up deciding or kind of coming across the idea to go into the space in, in general? So, you know, the idea was not mine. It really was uh, the genesis was as I was sitting there running uh, BuzzShift, which is my previous company with my business partner, um, my while my head was there and I wanted to be a good steward of that company and to be a good leader to the employees there, my heart was 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 kind of going in a different direction, right? So that different direction, I think there are three important steps that I had to do uh, to really make the jump. One was I had to articulate what I wanted. I think a lot of folks probably listening in, but, you know, even fellow leaders, uh, entrepreneurs, you know, nonprofit leaders, they struggle with in their professional and personal life to articulate and identify what they want. And I think some people don't want to admit what they want because they may be afraid of what other people will think of that. They may be saying, oh man, I want to do this, but it's totally out of my skill set or totally different than my career path. And Either people around me will think uh, less of me for it, or um, people in the industry won't accept me because of X, Y, or Z, right? But you know, for whether or not, I don't even want to make judgment calls on what people want. The fact that you can articulate what you want is probably the first step, right? I, I know a handful of, of guys and gals who what they want do not line up with my belief system or where I think they will end up right in life uh, from from some of their choices, but at least they're honest about what they want and they're going to go after that, right? Uh, so I think if you can do that, uh, and, and it's what I was able to do after a period of time, I'll call it nine months to a year, was really articulate what I wanted. And that the three things that I wanted was I wanted to run a hardware software company. Uh, I had been there, done that, and gotten the t-shirt for professional services. Uh, the second is I wanted to have an exponential impact on uh, on society and culture. So for every one unit of effort that I put out, I wanted to see a 10 to 20X return on, on culture around me. And then the third thing I wanted is to run uh, what's known as a redemptive organization. And so there's a group out of New York called Praxis Labs. 
If you look them up, you'll discover that they have sort of this framework for thinking about an organization that where uh, employees are for where leaders are sacrificial, uh, where employees are treated very generously, and where society is not just uh, it's not just an additive to a society; it's actually uh, renewing or transforming that 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 culture. So, <clears throat> those are the three things that I wanted to do. Uh, I articulated those. It's as succinctly as I just articulated to you, right? Which takes a lot of time to be able to shrink those down into those into those really, really uh, uh, concisely worded buckets. The second thing I did is I had to pass it among family and friends. And the reason I did that, and I was very open with them about it, was because um, I wanted to know that it was coming from a healthy place and not from... Uh, you know, what the Bible calls selfish ambition or vain conceit, right? I want it to be healthy for me and I want it to be healthy for my family. So if I wanted to go off and pursue something and my friends or my my colleagues or my family was like, man, that's totally off or that's going to wreck your family, then that's something I needed to hear. So I, I that's the second thing I did was, was pass it through that filter of family and colleagues. And then the last thing I did was uh, I had to just let it go, right? Because I had been charged to be diligent and excellent with this with this company, BuzzShift. But since my heart was over here, I had to be good with both of those. I had to hold to those in equal uh, equal tensions and equal weights. So once I was able to do that, uh, you know, as I was talking with other colleagues, a, a, a friend of mine who was familiar with Eden Green and where it was. Uh, put me on to Eden Green, uh, put me in front of their their lead investors, and then you know, uh, then I then I was able to have the opportunity to take over uh, in the CEO role. Mm -hmm. Interesting, yeah, I think it's it's quite interesting, and it's it's fascinating. I actually have heard of Praxis Labs because I went through a program called Praxis, the Discover Praxis, and in the course of researching it, I actually had found that uh, it's quite a, an odd coincidence. But um, no, I think that's really that's really fascinating story, and I think it's uh it's quite interesting to hear your thought process and how you ended up. Um, uh, coming to that conclusion, I think it's quite uh, quite interesting and quite prudent. Um, I guess you know you mentioned in the beginning, but let's kind of dive into a little bit deeper. Um, what exactly Eden is doing, and can you just kind of explain it at a very holistic yeah. perspective, so for people who are completely unfamiliar? Sure. So uh, it, the best way to look at it is what we're trying to solve for, right? And the big challenge in the produce industry right now, and in food supply in general. Uh, is that we've got a real supply chain problem when it comes to food. So we saw that we, but even before the pandemic, you could probably see the cracks uh, in in the you know in the system. But when after the pandemic hit and supply chain uh, has continued to be for the past couple of years a real problem in terms of transportation costs, in terms of labor, uh, and then you tack on the environmental changes that we've had, uh, what you get is a really inconsistent. Um, and unreliable source of produce. So a lot of people don't know this. Actually, the vast majority of people don't know this, but 90 to 95% of all leafy greens and lettuce for the entire United States comes from two spots, Salinas Valley, California, and Yuma, Arizona. So a literal desert, and then, and then an area that is consistently been going through drought and is now in a super drought. So you're in New York, Silas, nine times out of 10, when you eat a salad, don't think that it comes from Pennsylvania or New Jersey or even Missouri 
or anywhere east of the Mississippi, it 90% probability it comes from California, 3,000 miles away. So when you talk about consistency, when you talk about freshness, when you talk about affordability, when you talk about nutrition and waste, man, that is a high bar to hurdle when it comes to, to uh, the challenges that we face. So that's what we're solving for, right? And when you think about the current solutions, um, some of them are scalable, some of them are affordable, uh, some of them are consistent, none are all three until now. So on the scalable end, you've got community gardens and you'll hear people say, well, we need to grow in our backyards and we need to grow in community gardens. And we have these tower gardens that fit on our patio porches. That's great but it's not going to feed a population. No, they're just people who can't afford to do that, who don't have the land or the space to do that, right? And then more importantly, it's not consistent. You can't just get that 12, 12 months out of the year. There's going to be weather patterns. There's going to be seasonalities. That's just going to make that impossible. So uh, accessibility and affordability, accessibility and consistency aren't there. So then you have greenhouses. And flat tray greenhouses, which uh, if you ever look like in the Netherlands or in France, they're all over the place. The Europeans have really mastered the flat tray greenhouse, automated greatness. Here in the States, you'll see companies that have gone public like App Harvest and Local Bounty uh, and Gotham Greens. Those are great examples of flat tray greenhouses. The problem with flat tray greenhouses is from a business standpoint, you cannot get the business returns that you need for commodity level type produce without building those in 60 acre increments, at least. I mean, you look at those ones, all three that I just mentioned, they are building them in, in huge acre facility all under roof. When you build like that in that size, there's no way you're gonna get it close to a population center. So transportation is still an issue. And if transportation is an issue, then obviously price is an issue because you have to pay for that transportation somehow. So greenhouses scale, they're consistent, but they don't solve for the pricing equation. On the other end, uh, you've got vertical farms and you've seen them all also in the news, aero farms, in farm, uh, Bowery is another one probably up your way, right? Those are really great. They can grow very vertically and densely. But if you ever look in one of those greenhouses and you just look up a photo, like I encourage you to look up Bowery, right? Or Aero Farms is probably a better example. And all you see are lights stacked on lights, stacked on lights, stacked on lights. Basically bunk beds of greens, 36 feet tall. Um, in an acre and a half facility, uh, of one of those farms that I just mentioned, those vertical farms, you're looking at about 110 to 150,000 lights in there. That's really expensive to build and it's really expensive to run. So the electricity costs on those vertical farms, those indoor vertical farms, is probably anywhere in the realm of 4 million to 5 million kilowatt hours a month. That's like a data center. So, when you think about, okay, if it's that much cost to run that thing, what are you selling that's going to actually give you profit? And to this point at scale, they have not been able to sell things that give them that type of profit, except for 
microgreens and in some cases tomatoes there's some fruiting crops that are out there berries well, let me tell you something the world doesn't run on microgreens and strawberries it's just not doing it right so so there's this whole thing that they have not covered which is basic commodity level like lettuce and leafy greens right and if you think ah how much lettuce is there actually out there the TAMS on lettuce, total addressable market size, just domestically in lettuce, is an $8 billion market growing 10 to 15% year over year. And 90 to 95% of that is coming from those two places that I mentioned before. So that's what we're trying to solve. If you can grow with all the efficiencies of a greenhouse, but in the small compact footprint of a vertical farm, then all of a sudden you can grow affordably, consistently, and really close to the population. And that's what we do. Mm -hmm. So could you tell us more about what your um, what the farms look like specifically and maybe yeah. the different variants? Because it sounds like there's a little bit of flexibility there. Absolutely. So if you if your audience there wants to, they just go to edengreen.com, like gardenofedengreen.com. They'll see photos of it. But basically, most people, when most people think of a vertical farm, and I was in, on another interview, and they just come saying, okay, so so it's in this warehouse, or it's in this container. I just said, T for timeout. So you've said that about three or four times. Don't think of warehouse or container. Literally think of a greenhouse. Imagine yourself walking into a 24-foot-tall, acre-and-a-half greenhouse. So the size of a football field, even more, actually larger, 50% larger than a football field, but it's in a greenhouse. And you look up and you see walls and walls of greens. And if you look in those walls, their towers are actually grow towers that have, you know, 36 plant spots on each tower. That is what you would see in one of our greenhouses. Uh, and so if you kind of multiply all of those towers that are into rows and then just put into row after row after row in an acre and a half greenhouse structure, sunlight shining down on it, you'll find 328,000 plant spots in an acre and a half. Mm -hmm. That can do 13 harvests in a year. Uh, and that's conservative depending on what you're growing. So the equivalent, the volume equivalent of an acre and a half uh, Eden green greenhouse uh, the volume equivalent is to that of a 45 acre conventional farm. So the output is the, is, is the sim yes. same throughput. Okay. And yeah. then could you talk about, I know this is a typical item that usually is brought up is the, the water usage for that same amount of output. Yeah. So uh, the plants, whether they're grown conventionally, they're, they're grown, you know, indoors uh, in a greenhouse, in a vertical farm, whatever you want to call it. Plants always, they, they transpire, they drink water, right? So the question you should be asking is not how much it consumes, because every plant consumes the same amount of water to grow to a certain size, right? Plants are 89, 80, 85% water. The question is not how much plant, how much water does it consume? It's how much water does it waste, right? So uh, in a typical farm for 45 acres, producing roughly, call it 2 million pounds of leafy greens, you're going to waste on average about a million gallons of water. And that million gallons of water that you waste is full of pesticides. 
It's full of synthetic fertilizers. It's full of whatever the, the environment, the air, the rain brought in, right? It's full of bird poop. It's full of just everything. And it's running off into your catchment system or into other surrounding farms. Million, million gallons of water a year. Our system to grow that same volume of produce wastes 90,000 gallons of water for the entire year. So my house, the average house in America wastes 45,000 gallons of water a year. So just to sum that up, in two households worth of water waste, we will only, we will grow 2 million pounds of leafy greens. Mm -hmm. Is there any data you have around uh, how many people that typically feed? Just kind of curious because you mentioned two households and then obviously, you know, yeah. it'd be interesting to, to know. So that. the USDA serving size is about five ounces of greens, right? So if you kind of do the math, you're, you're looking at around 6 million servings coming out of an acre and a half greenhouse. Interesting. And are there any other things that have to be present for these greenhouses to work? Probably certain location, locational kind of, um, uh, parameters that, that need to fit into? No, we, all we need is water and power. <laughs> That's really power. all we need. And we can tap into Muni water. We do our own filtration system, reverse osmosis, and then running it through UV lights and, and, and sand, uh, carbon, uh, filters. And then we put our own nutrients in it. We put biomes in it, healthy biomes in it. We level out the pH, uh, and in that, and then we send it back out in, into our closed loop system that then, mm -hmm. uh, feeds the plants. And so that's probably another thing that, you know, people are asking, how do you get 13 harvests a year out of these plants, right? Well, when you do the water flow, like we do with the nutrients that we do, and in the environment that we do, uh, what you end up getting is uh, an all you can, uh, the plants get an all you can eat buffet in the perfect environment. And when they can get an all you can eat buffet from top to bottom, left to right, uh, you end up growing plants really fast. So if you go to one of the unique things, I think if you go to our website and see photos or even the ones behind me, right? There's a consistency from top to bottom. And that's something that we can do that no one else really can, which is grow whole head lettuce, like this the type that you get, you know, in, in the clamshells in the store, they're just this perfectly beautiful heads of lettuce. We can grow whole head lettuce from top to bottom 12 months around a year and have the same size and same specifications for, for these, uh, for these grocers and knowing no one else can do that, not in the mm -hmm. volume that we can. And just to clarify, do I understand correctly, correctly that this is all would be grown organically then this is, this is going to be considered organic. Uh, so, uh, we are, I, I think we're better than organic. So here's the deal or organic is, is a good certification. It's also a bit of marketing, right? Um, so the reasons organic came about was to ensure one, there's no synthetic pesticides Two, uh, you know, there was, uh, you know, and it's not even GMO, like you can right? so, but non-GMO, we'll just call it that no organic, uh, no synthetic pesticides, uh, non-GMO, uh, and, and really, you know, only the good stuff into the system. Uh, and so if you want to talk about like, Hey, is yours not no, no synthetic pesticides? Great. Uh, does yours have, uh, you know, uh, all, uh, no synthetic, uh, nutrients. Great. Um, is yours, you know, uh, controlled in such a way that it only gets the good stuff. Yes. So we check all the boxes 
without being organic. And then people, you know, then say, well, you know, what about the soil and their biomes in the soil and good bacteria? And, you know, my response to that is, hey, if you have, if you can afford to eat the best of the best, then all more power to you, right? Like go eat organic, go eat locally, you know, go eat local community garden greatness. But for the vast majority of America, they just need something safe, nutritious, and consistent to eat, right? That maybe doesn't have the organic label, but is absolutely as safe and as nutritious and uh, is, uh, you know, as reliable as organic. Oh, and by the way, it costs less. So the net net of it is for us, what we're trying to do, because our margins are so good on our greenhouses, we're providing USDA fancy and grade one produce, but at everyday low prices that you come to expect, not just at the Walmarts of the world, right? That's a great tagline, but as, at any other retailer. Mm-hmm. So that's what we're really concerned about is the, the sort of the trifecta is affordability, consistency, and safety. Mm-hmm. Oh, and not to mention taste profile. Yeah. If you ever taste some of our stuff, come down, come down to our greenhouse, um, the taste will knock, knock your socks off. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of curious, you know, you talked about a little bit about uh, the, to the provided to the grocers. And I'm just kind of curious to understand the model from who, who are your customers? Is this something yeah. you typically uh, eating green is doing on their own and selling directly to uh, yeah. sellers? Or are you working, you know, with cities that want to provide for uh, for their people locally or whatnot? How, is that, how does this work typically? Yeah, so that's a good question. So most all, if not every single competitor and peer of ours has their own label, right? Their own brand. And that's because from just from a business perspective, uh, your own brand, uh, while it takes more time uh, to grow, your own brand uh, has more margin. And so a lot of these folks, they backed into their business model because they don't have enough margin at the produce, at the production level. So they've got to bump that margin up with selling a high-end fixed cost retail brand. That's really great. Go team. But if you ever walk into a grocery store and you tell me, just look next time, you know, and this is for your audience too. The next time you walk into a grocery store, look at the aisle, look at the fresh produce uh, area and tell me how much is high-end packaged goods versus private label, white label, and wet wall, you know, the walls where they spray the mists on them. Private label, white label, the grocery-owned label, and wet wall probably take up 80% of that, and the high-end premium stuff take about 20% of it. So all of our peers are competing at the high-end, high-end level, you know, packaged goods, uh, we have gone the opposite direction and we are working with grocers directly with grocers, with their distributors to do their own private label and white label, which makes it even more astounding to our, to our peers in our industry. They're like, wait a second. So you have USDA fancy and USDA grade one produce that's usually meant, you know, for five, $6 a pound and you're selling it not under your own label, you're actually selling it through the through the grocer's own private label at $3 a pound? What? 
that's the astounding thing for people is they cannot believe we can do it at our prices. And it just really comes down to our technology and how we're growing it. And just the efficiencies, again, goes back to, can we use as much sunlight as we can? And can we grow densely in a vertical farm? And so that's how we're able to, to do that with those, uh, with those partners. So it's a long way of saying we sell through distributors directly to private label, uh, mm-hmm. private label of, of grocers. You'll never see, you'll never see our label uh, mm-hmm. out there. Interesting. And I guess, are there any, uh, for people say, for example, I've always been fascinated by this. If somebody's interested in building one of these themselves, right, they want to invest in, maybe yeah. they know that there's a need in their, in their area. Uh, do you also do licensing of the technology? Not yet, not yet. So right now we're building them all on our own uh, within our company. Um, there's two ways that people will be able to access us in the future. One is, first of all, you know, as, as we start expanding, we'll be in more and more, we'll, we'll power more and more white labels. And uh, as time goes on, we'll be able to announce what those white labels are. Uh, right now, those, those white and private labels uh, want to keep it to themselves because we're a bit of a competitive advantage to them. But, but in the near future, one, you'll be able to know where those are. Um, the second is, uh, you know, w- we want to be greenhouses infrastructure. So uh, much like a power plant, you know, the, you know, the con eds of the world, you know, the distribution, right, system, you know, the, the folks who are distributing your power, no one knows the name of the power plant. That's exactly where we want to be. We want to be the power plants for produce. Um, and so we'll have a mesh network of these all around the United States. Um, so the plan is to the plan is to have forty of these in five years all around the United States, and then more in the next five. So at some point, to build more than forty, we're going to need to go public. So at some point, the 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 consumer will be able to invest in us through the public markets. Mm-hmm. Interesting, changing the uh, the meaning behind power plants. Eh? Yes, That's exactly fun. right. Um, <laughs> So there is there is a there is a a roadmap for us to have I'll call it uh, self service right licensable smaller versions um, that will be great for uh, rural communities it will be great for universities institutions public institutions municipal authorities right nonprofits both domestic and international uh, and other government agencies that will then they will be able to uh, we we can go build one for them right put it on their premises, build it, and then they'll be able to run it themselves. And in that case, the business model is just a license and they're not really looking to make a profit off of those. They just want to supply the greens to their communities or, mm-hmm. and then they go yeah. raise donations to go, you know, for the, for the operational expenses of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And no, I think it's quite fascinating, especially with the effects of climate change, continuing to kind of mess up a lot of different parts of the world. I was always curious to understand, you know, some of these countries they don't exactly have the the infrastructure to be able to grow a lot of these things, right? So, right. you know, greens is one of them. I guess one of the other big questions I was keen to understand from, from what you guys can do is what do you anticipate being the key things that can be grown in this manner that can really be super efficiently grown like this? Yeah, you know, if especially from a nonprofit level or a governmental uh, support level, uh, you, you we can grow about 200 different varietals of leafy greens, herbs, fruiting crops, right? Uh, flowers even, right? So there's a lot of what we can grow. If you need to make it economically sustainable, like the, each of these units economically sustainable, there's probably 75 varietals that we can grow that will make money on a consistent basis if you got the you know operational expenses 
pretty efficient. Um, so it's it's a question of what you can grow versus what you should grow. And what you should grow is really based on the premise of, of why you're running it. If it's licensed out to a nonprofit, then you know they're not looking to make money off of it. They may want to break even, right? But so then uh, if you're if you're running a break-even model that a nonprofit will then fund year after year or just you know even just um, fund a little bit then then that will dictate what kind of varietals that you can grow but if you're a government agency we're just like hey when we want to build one of these we want to run it and we'll feed it you know we'll feed the beast every year for operational expenses but the output is is greens that our community can eat then that's a totally different you know that's a totally different setup and then you can grow a lot more things in there Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it would be fascinating to see if there are ever governments that decide to implement that because we see a lot of different uh, ideas kind of in the uh, social, I guess, services that are provided for, right. for people. That'd be interesting to see if any company, any countries decide to move that way. I did want to ask, I guess, kind of broadly speaking, what are your thoughts in general, kind of on a very macro level, on how society may advance to become kind of a more micro ecosystem? Mm -hmm. once we have these technologies kind of really widely dispersed yeah i mean from a from a macro trend you're seeing a lot more of this infrastructure being decentralized right so just just in general the decentralization and i'll call it the resiliency of communities is becoming more and more of an issue and uh, and i think the pandemic has has accelerated that because people have realized hey from a a national infrastructure, whether it's transportation, supply, power, or whatnot, you just you just can't depend on it nationally, right? So, uh, thirty thousand foot global level, you're seeing it's not the end of internationalization or globalism, right? But it really is. Countries are trying to take care of themselves more, right? The, all the trade pacts are changing you know, the NAFTAs and the, you know, EUs of the world, they're all changing. And it's just this, this overall trend towards taking care of our own, call it regionalism, call it whatever you want, right? Um, politically, call it nationalism, but that's, that's the deal. So if you see that on a macro trend, so then at the 20,000 or 10,000 foot level, okay, okay, so within the country, okay, you're taking care of yourselves within the country, what what then like what can you do what's what's decentralized what's centralized and on every single level you're seeing a decentralization you're seeing a hub and spoke but multiple hubs and multiple spokes model right because the decentralization whether it's talking about cloud computing or whether it's talking about infrastructure you know greens like us uh, if one hub goes down there's one that can take its place right there's a redundancy and resiliency there and then even among the urban settings, if you look at some of the urban institute or you look at some of the cities that and governors that are all getting together, a big recurring theme from state to state and from city to city is city resiliency. And okay, if things go south, if something happens, even if a recession happens right now, what are cities and towns doing to make themselves more resilient to those type of uh, external factors? So if you take all of those trends together and then you overlay that on the food supply system, then what do you get? And it's the same question. How do we make food production more decentralized and more resilient to these external factors? And so that's where we play in.
Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do think it is really fascinating. Obviously, from, you know, you mentioned the kind of global trade issues that kind of pop up. And yeah, obviously, we have some issues right now. I think that it would be it'd be unwise to, to think that they won't come up again if this is solved, right? Um, so I think that any any intelligent person would assume that, hey, there, there should definitely be a little bit more resiliency, perhaps even if even if it does cost more, right, to be able to, to have that optionality. Uh, that optionality is important. So that'd be fascinating. Um, one thing I wanted to kind of ask about is, are there any things being done now, maybe not that Eating Green is doing per se, but in general, kind of in this food space, uh, on the data side of things to try to do at least get a better understanding of real time demand for, uh, mm. for changing kind of appetites, if you will, uh, yeah. for what they're eating, what people are eating and what, you know, grocers might know, Hey, you know, I know what to order now and it can help inform the growers. Yeah. So grocers, grocers have a great, especially some of the bigger ones have a great analytics team, usually on staff that, that, and it's usually, it's usually housed with their buyers and they know just from historical data, right? Every year that passes data information, data gathering gets better, right? So the, from the historical data, as you analyze that, you can tell when trends of like, hey, uh, down South in Thanksgiving, the demand for collard greens goes up. And then after Christmas, it goes back down again, right? So you kind of see those trends and patterns of buying. The problem is, and anyone in any of these distributors or retailers will tell you, the problem is not on the demand side. They know exactly what the customer wants. The problem's on the supply side. As big as you know, a Walmart or an Albertsons or a Kroger gets, every single one of those buyers and those analytics teams will tell you the farms are a black hole of data. They just are. Because you don't know what you're going to get until it actually shows up on your dock. You just don't, right? A farm could be going, you know, and remember farms only get three or four harvests a year. So a farm could be going for 60, 70 days and they think we're on spot. We're great. You can get delivered on Friday. On Friday, you're going to get, you know, 2 million pounds on your docks, ready to go, ready to go. On day 69, there's a storm. Boom. Guess what? You're not getting that on your docks, right? So the supply end is the black hole of data not the market end. And when, Same. what, right? So when you try to solve for that, every single retailer and distributor and everyone along that food chain is trying to solve for predictions, like predictability and probability on the supply side. If you can solve for that, you got it. You got something special. Yeah, that is quite interesting. It's almost as if because it's in a controlled environment uh, in the growing houses, you it's almost like a manufacturing plant, right? You can kind Absolutely. of tweak and, and measure the, the yep. output. Um, yep. I guess I'm, I'm curious on the same topic of data with, you mentioned the existing kind of infrastructure, the conventional way, the black hole of data. Uh, what are some of the things that you might be doing now or thinking about doing in the future kind of in regarding to outputting that data and also to really make it more transparent what the buyers are getting, because I know there's a big push for ESG at the moment and yeah. a lot of people asking for verification of their data. So could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, um, I, I, I had a potential capital partner come in last week and we were just talking and she, she was walking through the greenhouse, met some of our management team and she noted just, just kind of a matter of fact, 
side note, just like you guys are a data and tech company and you, and, and you're, and you're just growing a lot of produce as well. And I said, yeah, you're absolutely right. Right. So from our end, it really starts with the way our culture, like one of our core values is being data obsessed. I don't care if you're an hourly worker picking greens, or if you're on the harvest team, or if you're, you know, seeding, or, you know, you're on my executive team, you better be data obsessed. And it's because uh, when you're data obsessed, then you want to make sure one, your data is accurate and robust and there's integrity. And then two, you just want to make sure you have all the inputs you can possibly get, right? You can't, you can't manage what you can't measure. So from our end, personally, what we're, you know, as a company, what we're doing is really continuing to obsess over data and the, and the integrity of it. So that when our investors come and ask like, Hey, how much water are you using per, per, you know, per, per cup or per, per yield, per harvest, right? How many, how much light electricity are you using? What's your carbon offsets, right? What are, you know, what are all the inputs and what you're saving uh, on the outputs? How much waste do you have? We're, we're capturing that as granularly as possible uh, so that uh, we can then use those later down the road for whatever purposes they want, either from a an audit purpose, from a uh, you know ESG benefits purpose, from a uh, just from a reporting perspective, we, we want we are focused on the clarity and uh, the integrity of that data. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's quite interesting. I think that is very good foresight, obviously, to you know especially the the idea of potentially going public at some day, some point. You know that'd be certainly required. One thing I'm kind of curious about, given that this is kind of almost like manufacturing to some extent, um, do you see a lot of areas for um, operational efficiency imp improvements, kind of the same way you look at like a Tesla, for example, where yeah. they had to get things rolling and then there was massive efficiency ability. Do you see a lot of that down the road? Yeah, absolutely. So, so in our world, there are really three ways that uh, three sort of God metrics, if you will, yield per plant spot, uh, operational expenses per plant spot. And then the last one is, is you know, patent portfolio and, and sort of expansion of, of innovation. And so uh, in each three of those, all of our teams are working towards improvements on those, right? If you can increase the yield per harvest, then you're increasing, like it's a straight direct correlation to top line revenue. Uh, and if you can increase the yield, uh, and it's on the plant level, then what ends up happening is there's no, really no extra operational expenses. So everything on that top line rolls down to the bottom. Uh, from an operational standpoint, I'll tell you right now, uh, we haven't even started on automation. So uh, for the business listeners out there, uh, we, we get 35% we get EBITDA starting out on each greenhouse. Uh, that is I mean, people, if people, you, you could probably hear people's jaws drop right now uh, because most farmers pride themselves on 5% EBITDA and most regular businesses, like my last business that I had, we would be popping champagne bottles if we got 25% EBITDA. So I'm getting 35% EBITDA on conventionally priced lettuce. There's a lot to go up from there, surprisingly. We've got, we've got some stuff up our sleeve. 
the most of which is automation, but there's a lot of other things there. We're doing that with 25 employees in a greenhouse doing manual seeding and harvesting and packing. So you can imagine there's there's some operational efficiencies there if we choose to do so. So that's the that's a big if. And it goes back to, you know, how I got started in this and, and what our values are. And it's that I want this to be a net benefit for not just for society at large, but also for our local community. And if I can employ 25 people and get a 35% EBITDA, gosh, at what point do you just start getting greedy, right? And then you start saying, okay, what if we can employ only 10 people in the greenhouse? Well, what if we can't, right? I'm not saying we won't, but that's not really the question I want to ask. Right. Yeah. At some point, I think this is a very interesting topic. It's come up before um, when I was discussing the issue with some, I believe, Ryan, Ryan Kemp, I believe. And um, we talked about this, right? It's at, at what point does profits kind of matter so much that you can essentially, you know, tank the, the social impact of the business that it can make, yeah. it can be a very positive impact uh, for a lot of people. So that's, that's quite interesting. I think that's very uh, thoughtful process and interesting to hear. Um, I am kind of curious if you have any, insight to the general public or the general trend around um, how things might look in five to 10 years from kind of an individual consumer's perspective to grow their own food. I know there's, there's a number yeah. of people out there. I come from a place in the middle of nowhere where my mom grows a garden everywhere every, every year. And um, you know, that feeds a lot of, of what we do throughout the year. Yeah. So I'm just kind of curious your general opinion and what you're seeing in, in the trends there. I think, um, listen, I think it's well-intentioned. And I think a lot of people have good intentions on growing their own food, right? Uh, but and for, and for those for those folks, I say I think there is a trend. There will be a trend in more backyard gardens, right? More windowsill gardens, which is great. You can grow some amazing herbs in a windowsill. Uh, but it won't come, when it comes to everyday feeding of people, uh, that we have got a long way to go before we're able to decentralize food uh, production down to a household level, right? At some point that decentralization stops because there's just not either the willingness or the ability to, right? Here in Dallas, uh, I think that the stat is somewhere around only 35% of people own their own homes, right? So that really breaks in the question, like how many people, how many of the, you know, 65% of people that don't own their own homes. So they're renting. Maybe they're not single family homes. Maybe they're in a townhouse, an apartment, right? Um, you know, multifamily of, uh, you know, building. How many of those can actually afford to have the space to or are willing to grow their own food? I think that's a really small, small percentage. It's just the reality. Yeah, and I think also, of course, the at some point the efficiency breakdown. So that kind of on the macro, you end up significantly reducing the overall efficiency of of what yeah. you're doing. And I know, for example, you know, in New York, there might be there's probably a good number of well-intentioned people who might want to do something like that. So mm -hmm. there's also a lot of people who just simply wouldn't have the time if they wanted to even. Yeah. Um. So quite interesting. I think we, we sort of touched on this before, but I'd be keen to hear if you have any other additional thoughts on this kind of when we look at the geopolitical landscape and things shifting with kind of the food insecurity issues, especially that uh, especially looks like Africa is going to face because of the grain shortages, et cetera. Yeah. Um, any kind of big comments on generally 
how this technology can help avoid these things in the future? Maybe any just general thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think, again, it's it's a question of what we can grow versus what we should grow. Um, on a macro trend, what I see happening is for the things, you know, for the 90 percent <laughs> of greens coming out of Salinas and Yuma, I think there's there's going to be a a, a reckoning there sheerly because of water shortage, not because of anything we're doing. Uh, take away from the market share that we'll be taking from them and more thinking about just water, right? What can you grow there? What ought you, you to grow there? Uh, so there's a question of like, should those farms even be replaced with something else? But I think for other farms, uh, I think there's a very, very real possibility of, of companies like ours, maybe not ours, but companies like ours who maybe focus on things that they can grow really well and then allow, allows the farms to then grow things that they can grow really well that have higher margins for them, right? Um, so it really is a competitive, they, they really realize their competitive advantage uh, in, in what they can grow depending on their geography. And then I will say like, you know, eating green is not a silver bullet for farming. We're just not, and there is no silver bullet for farming. It's going to take a combination of your traditional open field farmers, whether they're in California, Iowa, Nebraska, or Pennsylvania, right? Um, it's going to take those folks plus folks like us to really feed the nation. Yeah, I think it is interesting. I, I find it fascinating being from a family of uh, both my parents were farmers growing up dairy farmers. So I think that the mentality amongst, uh, especially small farming communities, usually to kind of stick with the old ways and not necessarily super quick to adapt new technology. So I think it will be fascinating to see how the agriculture industry as a whole does change over the coming coming years, right? Yeah. Um, so they, they, thanks for that. I think it's really helpful um, to understand. One thing I want to go into kind of on the workforce side of things, you mentioned it a little bit already, but uh, could you maybe give us a breakdown of, on average, kind of what are we going to, how many headcount required to, to operate these facilities? What's the training required? Um, just kind of talking a little bit about the workforce in general, because that is an issue in some places like California, for example, which yeah, is very absolutely. difficult to find uh, workforce. So two aspects about the workforce. One, when, when you're like us and we're located adjacent to, co-located to a distribution center, uh, then you really have access to a wider workforce because you're in or around the urban population, right? So the, the workforce is much, the, the, the workforce pool, the employee pool is much deeper. When it comes to actual employees on our staff, we've got roughly 25 greenhouse employees per greenhouse. Uh, and those will range from hourly workers all the way to, you know, your uh, greenhouse managers, your your agronomists, right? Your food safety specialists. And those hourlies uh, really start off, um, th they don't have college degrees. They have high school degrees. They can learn uh, the basics of, of working in our greenhouse in probably eight hours. It's really not that hard of an uh, uptake. But one of the things that we want to do and that we're doing with our current employees is that uh, I'm a baseball fan. And, uh, and the, the pun is not lost on me, but we want to create our own farm team, right? Of workers that start with hourly, then work their way up to be assistant grow, you know, managers and, and greenhouse managers and agronomists and whatnot. 
food safety, planting, packaging, ops, facilities, right? We want to grow their professional careers so they, they can fill those roles. I would much rather fill those roles with folks who have been in our uh, in our company for a long time rather than getting an expensive free agent, if you will. So that's the plan is to, is to uh, educate them from within the system. And as we build this mesh network out, then all of a sudden they will know if they can operate one in Texas, they'll be able to operate one in Indiana, the same one in Minneapolis, the same one in New Jersey, the same one in Atlanta, same one in New North Carolina, right? So they'll actually be uh, open to upward mobility and, and geographic mobility where they had never been able to do that before, simply by starting at the ground floor of one of our greenhouses. Yeah, I think it's interesting. It, it brings a bit of equity to an industry that perhaps didn't really have it right, be, before, right? Yeah. I think it's very interesting. Obviously, you know, my day job being recruitment, it's very fascinating to see somebody actually doing this because it's been kind of a thesis of, of what we've seen for a long time is farming your talent internally. Um, you know, again, no pun intended, but I think, I think it's very fascinating. So, uh, you know, pat yourself on the back for that one. That's very good. And I think it'll be beneficial to so many, so many people. I am curious to hear based on that comment, if you have any specific thoughts in general on the education landscape, I think that, you know, there's a lot of discussion lately about the, the value of a college education in a general, you know, maybe kind of just an average, uh, an average school, for example. Do you have any thoughts about this and how it may change over the coming years, especially with companies in the climate tech space that are kind of in the intersection of technology and, and hardware? Yeah, you know, um, I think there are, you know, there will continue to be a need for advanced degrees uh, and college degrees in our field, obviously, for innovation, uh, especially agronomy. I mean, that's a that is a difficult uh, degree to get. Uh, it gets into science and STEM, right? And, and I think there's a, there's a place for that. And then I think there's a place, it's a, it's a pretty funny thing. Like our industry is poised to be a good mix of both advanced degrees as well as vocational degrees, right? And the trades, right? I need one of the most valuable people in my organization is our greenhouse facility manager, right? Don't need a college degree for that you do need to know a lot about different types of machinery, about plumbing, about electric, right? There's just the facilities management and that's a big facility. So you think about the mix of those and you think about just uh, the machinery involved and the, we, I mean, we have seven miles of pipe in an acre and a half facility. Wow, does a plumber have a job for life, <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, Th those it's a, I think there's a, there's a need for both in our industry. And I, and I think, you know, where we can hire, we will, but where we can train is even more important. So uh, I hope that answers the question. Yeah, I think it does. I think it's also fascinating to me that I think there will be more companies doing this from what I've seen. And this is a really good example of a company doing this, but I think that it will come down to there will be specialists who are very, very good, you know, science people. They, they understand the kind of the engineering aspects of things, but then there will be people who can, will decide, Hey, I, maybe I don't need to go to university because there's actually a very good career path in many options, not just, you know, not just eating green technologies, other companies in other industries that will also do the same thing where the trade-off of spending all that debt and that time, you can kind of get into life sooner and just learn learn things and make a living for your family. Because not everyone's trying to be, you know, a millionaire or billionaire 
Um, a lot of people just want to live a nice life. They don't necessarily care about any anything in particular. Yeah. So I think it's really fascinating to see how this dichotomy will come together. And um, I do think personally that there's a bit of a division typically between uh, college educated and and kind of blue collar workers as you know white collar and blue collar. And I think that we need to see that kind of come together and get rid of that division. But um, the only one major question I have left is really in general now that this problem is being solved, kind of it's at least the kind of at the crux of it is it's solved. What are the the problems that need to be solved now after this to really enable this infrastructure to be built, kind of at least within the U.S. Uh, you know, I, I, gosh, that's such a huge question. I'll, I'll I'll try to winnow it down to something more manageable. But I think uh, the the biggest I would say the biggest problem is education. Like people don't know, you know, they don't they don't know what hydroponic is. Uh, they think it's you know they equate that a lot of them equate that like okay is that genetically modified like is that grown in a lab like what does that mean right so there's an education uh, education piece of cea which is controlled environment agriculture uh that's going to be you know that will continue to be a trend for us uh and that's something we're eating green is leading the way is with education like if you go to our website a lot of that stuff is not even on our tech actually very little of it is on our tech and the videos that you see i think uh, my head of agriculture on YouTube has a video series called Spill the Greens. And it really is just an educational, like, hey, here's what hydroponics is. Here's how plants are grown. Here's how they, you know, all the, all the, you know, here's why they seed, you know, what happens. So there's this great education piece that we're trying to build out um, that I think will be continue to be important. And I think the second thing, and that's from the consumer side, really the second thing is uh, is from the government side. A lot of the grants and subsidies and uh, just uh, the way that government support is designed is for open field farming and the traditional farmer. Uh, and if you're going to get this uh, industry uh, to grow because you need you, the government needs a more stable and consistent supply of food, you're you're going to have to you're going to have to be a good government, a good servant of uh, of the taxpayer by uh, looking at at subsidies and grants and laws and regulations uh, in a way that encompasses CEA, this, the CEA industry. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's quite fascinating that that topic of regulation is always interesting to me, um, that obviously existing regulation tends to stifle potential innovation because people are so used to doing it the other way or the grants are there, et cetera. Um, it'd be also interesting to see, you know, the more areas where this technology becomes used, this vertical growing, really can free up i would assume depending on at what scale in which items can be grown you can actually free up quite a lot of land space used for other things right so i think yeah. especially maybe not so much for the us it's an issue but for other countries where they're kind of uh space constricted it might be it might be interesting but any uh any final thoughts you want to leave us with final things people you know what you're looking for people can reach out to for you or reach out to you for whatever yeah if people are interested in learning more i would say just go to edengreen.com um, and on the socials, they're all at Eating Green Tech. Uh, and if people want to learn more about me, uh, it's just my last name, Badrina, B-A-D-R-I-N-A.com. You can find me there. Awesome. Very good. Thanks so much for coming on. I uh, really enjoyed this and looking forward to being able to share this with everybody. Thanks, Silas. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode and thank you for tuning in. Uh, we really appreciate any comments or thoughts you might have on the show. If there's any specific topics that you really liked uh, and you wanted to talk about, feel free to drop us a note. 
always glad to discuss off the record as well and kind of hear your thoughts. If you have ideas for future episodes, always glad to, to hear them. Uh, of course, we, we really encourage people to reach out to Eden, uh, to reach out to Eddie directly on LinkedIn to learn more about Eden. Um, perhaps you, you know somebody who might be interested in working there um, or somebody who just might be really interested to learn about this technology. You can maybe share share this episode with somebody who's interested to learn about the space. Um, if you are joining us for the first time and you enjoyed the show, we ask, of course, please give us a review. Uh, give us feedback directly over Slack. Whatever it is, it really helps a lot. Uh, to get feedback from from listeners and um, just a quick note on our next episode we will be joined by Greg Fasulo from Elevation uh, and in that episode we discuss how they are helping first of all helping visualize energy usage for homeowners uh, secondly how they are also installing solar to help reduce environmental impacts and save money and then uh, thirdly how they are helping utilities manage manage demand response programs uh, through their kind of interactive uh, platform that they, they can use once they have a number of homes uh, connected to the grid. So really very interesting episode with Greg. He does an extremely good job at making what is sometimes a pretty confusing topic to a lot of homeowners. Very, very simple to understand. And uh, he did a very good job also extolling the benefits of solar in a, in a very, very kind of simple way. It's really, really well done, honestly. So uh, really looking forward to sharing that, that episode with you next time. But uh, until then, thank you again for listening to the Clean Techies podcast, and we will see you next time.